Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here in Wade's backyard on a nice, beautiful uh, Wednesday evening in Milwaukee. We're here with Ziggy. Say hi, Ziggy. Hello. And Sophia. Hi. Who is going to try out for eight-year-old softball soon. Yep, she just rolled her eyes. <laughs> Wade is here too, and today we're going to be talking about Wade's book, his latest book, The Devil Behind the Surplus. Um, you guessed it, it's about Flacius. And we need to remember later to tell a funny story about a picture on my bulletin will, board. I'm sure we will get there yeah. about uh, 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 the actual picture of the devil uh, <laughs> behind the surplus. Anyway, we're going to get to that in um, our, our main topic. Uh, we're happy to remind you that we are part of the 1570 Legacy Project, um, a series of podcasts. They do more than that, of course, in podcasts. They have uh, online courses now, at least one, the Galatians. And the blog post, too, Mike. I don't know if you saw that this now. Um, they have, you can listen to them, so they have someone recording them, so you can actually, you know, if, if you're driving, whatever else, you wanna, you wanna, you're interested in a blog post, you can listen to it while you go. Who reads your blog post? Did they hire somebody? I, I don't think I've had one read yet because I've been way behind on getting one in. I'm supposed to do one on vocation that I, I should would, get done. I would suggest Morgan Freeman if you have any choice. I was thinking uh, it would probably be kind of funny if it were, uh, you know, like a kid. Like, uh, you know, know, because that's probably like the seriousness with which mine should be taken. That that would be funny. Uh, But 1517 Legacy, I think probably known mostly for their podcast, but they actually do quite a bit. They do some publishing. Wade has published uh, a couple books with them. Not only that, but they've picked up books that have been published before uh, under different names um, and different publishers bought the rights to them or were given the rights to them. And so they got quite a bit of a catalog, a lot of Montgomery books. Um, they picked up, I believe, uh, some Mob- Magdeburg Press yep. stuff. I really uh, think we could teach a whole course just with books put out by 1517 at this point. And affordable, too. And so check them out for all of those things. Um, blogs, podcasts, online courses, um, uh, books, publishing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, they have speakers that go out all the time. And so it's just a good resource and a good place to go. 1517legacy.com is the correct address. So with that, um, before we get into our very exciting free-for-all, um, Sophie, are you ready to read the disclaimer for us? She is scooting over right now on her scooter. This is quite the entrance. Sophia, go ahead. This show Into the microphone, please, honey. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employees. To be honest, most of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud, a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live freely, my friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to our free-for-all, where we talk about, what is it Peter says, the pressing questions of our day. Is that what he says? And so what we're going to talk about today, a little backstory, 
is I have been very proud for a long time of my 1997 Burgundy Ford F-150, affectionately named... Bessie. Bessie. And uh, she has served our family well. Uh, she saw, she uh, seated six with a, uh, the front bench had a uh, armrest that came up so you could have the seat up there. And she died, or mostly died. She, uh, I guess, entered the last stage of her life when we had a softball tournament a few weeks ago in Poinette, Wisconsin. And the fourth cylinder pretty much uh, was not firing. And I realized unless I was driving 60 or higher, it was just going to shake like crazy. And we made it back to Milwaukee. And to my great astonishment, uh, Ziggy and Sophie, you can attest to this. I thought, this is the end of dad having a truck. Um, Minivans you can get for like 20 grand new, like a Dodge. I mean, my options are limited being from Detroit. uh, You buy American. And so for probably 23, 24 grand, you could get a decent minivan, stone go seating, whatever else. And mom uh, amazingly thought we should get another truck. And we underwent a search. And Bessie, sadly, um, was sent off to pasture. And I have pictures. Maybe I can post one on the Facebook page of me with Bessie. And what saddens me is... And and Bessie went covered in writing. Sophie, you want to explain the writing that was on Bessie? What do you want me to? Why was the writing on Bessie? Um. Into the mic, hon. Because they were doing a tournament. Into the mic, that's where the sound goes. They were doing a tournament. They had a tournament, and so Dad knew it was going to be, um... Betsy was going to die very soon. So um, he let all the girls ride on the truck. Well, they surprised me riding on it, not in a way that wasn't ruining it. And what? All the girls on the team rode on the truck as a surprise for me. So I turned in a truck covered with uh, riding on it. And uh, so we have a new truck now, and we've not settled on the name, and we're not going to get into an argument about that here. Uh, Sophie wants a young name, not an old name. Is that true? A name that fits the truck. Into the mic. Yeah. People cannot hear you nod your head. Yeah. So Sophie shot down a lot of names. Um, a lot of good ones, okay. too. Okay, don't say them. Okay, that's fine. But uh, So I traded in a 1997 Ford F-150, about 210 or 15,000 miles, for a uh, 2011 Ford F-150, that was at 58, 59,000 miles. I think it was like 58,500. And then we went to Myrtle Beach for Ziggy's tournament. We've yep. been all over. It's in the 60s now. But uh, my wife was surprisingly okay with it. Um, it doesn't have the cap yet. I'm debating if I should put the cap on. The cap definitely makes it look grandpa-ish, but I loved having the cap on, the, on Bessie. Do you um, keep the old cap? I should have taken you it off. Have. I actually could have got money for it. Would, it. it would, well, and it would look good in your backyard, too. Oh, it could have been a fort for the kids. I didn't think of that. I mean, it could have been a, what is that thing you're building now? A pergola. A, a yeah. pergola. That, could have been, <laughs> that would have been the most beautiful pergola ever, like if I just had yeah. a picnic table umbrella. <laughs> um, why do we think of this stuff too late? But so here's what we're getting at. So I've got a new truck. Um, the kids hate it because... 
What? The 97 F-150 I had was like the first like backseat bench they had. So it only opened on one side. And once you were like five years old, your knees were hitting. Um, and they liked that closeness, the experience of being together back there. Uh-huh, great content. <laughs> okay, Dad. But now, like, when they're in the back seat, I can't even hear them because there's room. It uh, it never shakes, like, to help keep me awake when I'm driving, make me feel alive, like it might die. Um, and uh, it's got Bluetooth, whatever. It's a 2011, but so they really disdain this this vehicle, and they wish we would have got another minivan. But maybe if you two could react first... Uh, do you think we got a good family vehicle? And if not, what do you think would be a better family vehicle? And then Mike and I would talk about, uh, what do we have to own now? Cause we have a family. What would we like to own later when we don't? I mean, we'll still have family, but they'll hopefully we not be in to, the house. We, yeah. We don't have to drive them around. Okay. <laughs> hopefully. Before I give my opinion. Into the microphone, sweetheart. Before I give my opinion on what car I wish we had and if I like our car. I'm going to say that you were totally lying when you said we hate the truck because of how much space it has. You said you don't like it because you can't touch our legs in the back. I do like reaching back and holding Sophie's hand or touching their knees. So, it's way better because in Bessie, we have to be... May she rest in peace. We have to be squished together. You got to be. You bonded. No. What What would you What would you like? What What do you think? Would you rather have a minivan or the new truck? And we asked you guys this, so you guys have thought about it. Ziggy, what do you think? You like the truck, or you want uh, you want a minivan? I like the truck better than having two minivans. And even better than a. A minivan and an SUV, right? You were, you were pro truck at tr- pro, pro truck, as opposed to a uh, Ford Explorer. Or I'll admit, we looked at Ford and Chevy, and Chevy still takes a little out of me. But, but you guys were all truck, all of you, yeah. I think so, yeah. What car? What car would you like? When what's your when you get, buy your first car? What do you want it to be? If you had forty, fifty grand, and you could just go wild. I don't know how much most cars cost. That, that that's going to cover most cars. Fifty grand is a loaded, nice American vehicle. Hmm. That's a Jeep Wrangler. It's a Ford F one fifty. New Ford Bronco coming. If I could have waited till you kids were gone, new Ford Bronco. Um, it's a. It. I think fifty grand probably even is a Ford Explorer or. Uh, lower end SUV. A used yeah. suburban, probably, yeah. All right, so Ziggy said off the mic, uh, PT Cruiser, which I think is an odd choice. False. But He's he lying to a, everyone. Uh, smart no. car no. or Mini Cooper. Stop well, abusing pick one, me. Then. Pick one. I don't know. Sophie, what, what would you want? I don't know. Would you like a sports car, like a fast little car, or you'd like having a big one? How about we do this, Sophie? What do you like? Right now we have a Ford Focus, stick shift manual transmission, which is Maggie's. We have a Dodge Grand Caravan minivan, which is Mom's. I like bigger cars because then you can fit more people in it. So do you like the truck better or the van? (laughs) 
You're too pensive, kid. They can't hear pensive. Okay. Well, it depends what situation I'm in. If I just, like, am going... If we could only keep one of our three vehicles right now, what would you keep? I don't know. I would keep the truck, probably. I would keep the truck because... If we kept the truck, we can only fit six people in it. What family member would you get rid of? <laughs> I'd get rid of Sophie. Um, Nick, can <laughs> I get rid of two people? Yes. Can I get rid of three people? Two. Aw. <laughs> now that's going to be I need someone to change my diapers when I get older. And the odds really decrease if we get rid of more than two. <laughs> now it's going to be a hard decision. What would be the two? What, what would be the three? You, Ziggy, and Nick. You would get rid of me. <laughs> that is the correct answer. All right, so Wade, what would you, what, like the kids are grown up. Your, F1, your F-150's just about done. You got to get a new car. What's I would get an be? old school Jeep Wrangler. I would, I, um, I would get, I would or probably. Or a, depending on the new Ford Bronco, maybe. They still make those? They're, they're coming back. The Bronco and the Ranger come back next year. And I was holding out for that. I would maybe get a used new Ford Bronco. There you go. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Detroit. We moved from California to Plymouth. And, and thankfully, when we came, we were in a Chevy Astro van. But uh, Plymouth, like Livonia. Which those minivans, the, the Aerostar and the Astro van were just, yeah. like, let's not try hard. Right. Let's just put something on the market. <laughs> um, but uh, it's true that you got to buy American. A transmission? Like, we're supposed to have a working transmission. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, those were maybe not the best years for American cars, but getting better now. Um, but not only, and you can attest to this, it was not only that you better have an American, especially for a pastor to come. You're not going to come in a Toyota. Yeah. Oh, very but we much. need. We even got grief for having Chevy instead of Ford. We had a Ford Ford plant right right around and the people corner. People don't get that that they they think Michigan Big Three. When I was in Saginaw, being a Ford person was really like not a good thing. Like that was GM country. Yeah. If you're in Detroit, Rouge Plant, Wayne Assembly, that is Ford. So, I mean, it really depends where you're at, but sorry, go ahead, And Mike. please e- send us all your emails about how parts are made in different places and all that kind of stuff. We do understand that. Right, yeah. Um, but uh, when the the vast majority of the co- economy is based on um, these these manufacturers, it's it's very easy for you to um, really love a, love a brand and and make fun of other people yeah. who don't. And you have know that who brand. you're weird. Co- like if you had that cousin who was always a little weird, didn't do great in school. You know who, he, where uh, he or she ended up working, right? Yeah. Chrysler. <laughs> <laughs> and the, you know, but the thing was, is how many how many people did you and I know that their parents graduated high school? And got a really, really, right really, yep. really good, high-paying, took-care-of-you job. And, yep. and and a shout-out to the unions a little yep. bit. And they're not oh, perfect. Sure. But um, uh, there was a lot of wealth, and that wealth was spread around. Yep. And, uh, and middle-class wealth, and which very, isn't bad. And very middle-class uh, and not necessarily college graduates. And so you, you got you to gotta be in, in, in those towns to really appreciate... Um, um, that kind of loyalty, but anyway, um, I didn't Your want. Your kids are gone. Our kids are gone. They're not living in the house. Let us pray. Mm, let us pray. Um, you buy a vehicle. You know, I it, any any brand. This is what I've always wanted. I wanted a big, fat, black Lincoln. Bigger, wider, the better. Like so, when you're when you're driving, you feel like you're on a boat. 
My first car was a 77 Lincoln Cougar. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So, um... But uh, I think, you know, it's funny that you talk about the minivans and stuff. When, when I first got married, I, I knew that we would get a minivan someday, and I, I was fine with that. And my wife didn't want to. And really? And when it came time huh. for a minivan, I mean, I, I, my arm was twisted way beyond my back to get a minivan, even though I didn't think we could have probably not. We could have survived with, without having a minivan. Um, but when you're a mother and you are loading up stuff and children, um, you think about that more than the, the father does. Father right. says, I can, let's just not take as much stuff on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> let's not take let's, food. Let's not. Like there's literally food at access. Like right. we're not going to starve. Yep. Even if we break down, we will walk to McDonald's. Right. We'll be fine. But that's not how you and I think. And so we appreciate that. And we will get the minivan with all the Stone Go storage and all that kind of stuff. And that is a game changer. I mean, Stone Go is like once we've had it, when I, because I went to a ton of dealerships and I'm like, I'm going to go do my due diligence. Like, I went to the Dodge dealership. What does the minivan cost now? Whatever else. And it's like, if it's not Stone Go, I don't want it. Like, yeah. I want another truck, but if I'm going to have a minivan, it's going to have Stone Go when, because that is yeah. big. You know, and why would you? I've seen cereal put in there, and we would have starved. And then it's like we pull over, and then there's a, I don't know what cereal do you guys eat? Reese's Puffs, honey Reese's bunches Puffs of oats. down there, and then they survive. Yeah, I you know when we were we were getting sold, uh, we have a uh, town and country now. When we were the salesman was selling us, he was saying, well, and it has stow and go. And I said, uh, and he showed us, and I said, where are you going to stow and go my manhood? Yeah. <laughs> So um, I laughed, he laughed, and then we you bought a town, a town and country. country. Yeah. All right, well, so you get this Lincoln. It. Uh, Preferably, I would have a driver, too. So it would be just, you like the ride of a sedan. I, mean, I would just, like a big, wide sedan, yeah. Uh, I respect that. Ziggy, did you pick something? What's your, your dream ride? I have always liked Ford Mustangs. I don't know if they're actually, like, the best cars. But what got really annoying was this kid on my baseball team. For some reason, for, like, a week, he was obsessed with Honda Fits. I don't even know what that is. Exactly. <laughs> Up here, they're the ugliest car. Apparently, they're super durable, but they look like someone took a smart car and just made it longer. Mm. And then they're like, oh, well, if you break off the mirrors, it looks better. So you're saying, though, when you turn 16, if uh, somehow I've been promoted to super rich professor of theology at WLC, you would want a Ford Mustang? Not right away. <laughs> so what would you want? <laughs> Dude, well, go for what you want. Like, why are you going to shoot low? Your sister has a Ford Focus stick shift with 140,000 miles. Like, be ambitious. Um... Mustang's a good choice. Mustang's Nothing. a good choice. Sophie, what do you want? Actually, the Ford Focus is not hers because mom does not want her to drive it until she has more practice with a stick, stick shift. Right, and also she'll probably drive the van some because she's going to have to get you, you guys from school. So. Sophie, what car could you buy yeah, right what do you now want? if you wanted a car? If you could buy a car, what car would you What do you think's you a cool car when you're out and about? Or if you don't know the name of the car, whose car? Like someone we know who owns one. Hmm. Would Abigail have a choice, a clear choice, or no? 
You know, does she, she voice that? She does not. At one, one time, she saw an old, and I don't remember what model it was, but probably late seventies Chevrolet something, whatever. And she's like, "That's cool." Yeah. I'm like, "Yeah, seventies were a good car. It is cool. It is. Yeah, it is. Repairs. So nothing, Sophie. What oh. I want is I one know. of my three girls is gonna just drive pickup trucks. I think that is, to me, That's like, cool. but I'm like, okay. oh, that person that pickup truck's driving like a jerk, whatever else, and I pull up, and it's just some lady, like, driving a pickup truck. I'm like, you go. <laughs> I absolutely respect Ford Ra- you Ford the Ford Ranger. I think you'd look really cool in a Ford Ranger. No? Well, I wouldn't want a crappy one like Bessie. <laughs> but right. I would drive a pickup truck. All right. There well, it good. is. All there right. you go. We've heard. Anything else on the car front? I think other than it is already the main topic. for our main topic, which is uh, Wade's latest book, The Devil Behind the Surplus, Matthias Flacius and John Hooper on Adiaphora. Um, so before we interview Wade, basically, about his book and his um, his studies on this and his expertise on this important part of uh, Reformation history, um, we're going to get some critiques from, the, from his children on these books. Not just this book, but any books. Now, um, Ziggy, how many? How much of your uh, father's writings have you read? None of them. Okay, and Sophia, have you read anything that your father has written? I read one page of one of his books. And how was it? Um. You're a very good reader, so I you should understand. I didn't really care about it. <laughs> oh, okay. There are no pictures in these books, though. I wasn't paying attention to yeah. it that much. So. Just, you, just to be clear. I currently have uh, at least three translations in publication, and then uh, three books I've written. So out of six, um, knowing that your mom read some as a proofreader, but nothing else otherwise of that, and that the other kids don't even care enough to come on the podcast, you're telling me that my family as a whole has, out of love, read one page, Sophie? (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. Well, I would read more. But, you know, it's not something you're going to take in public. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Just isn't, okay? Do, was it at that one page that you read, I mean, do you, did you say, oh, this is good writing? I mean, maybe I'm not interested in it, but this is, I mean, the sentences make sense. Or were you just like, yawn, I want to read Harry Potter. Well, yeah, it's good. I was like six. I was not reading Harry Potter. Okay, well, all right. So why'd you stop? Well... Into the mic, hon. It was like... Keep in mind, this review of my book is being given by someone who won't speak into the mic. <laughs> like, one direction. It was good, but like, you know, we have better books. 
you know, that's like what's a better book? Like, and what? it's not really for like my age. You know what? I'm gonna. It's for grown-ups. I'm gonna write that down, and when they publish the second, uh, do not put that on Amazon as a review. <laughs> I can see Mike now typing that as like. <laughs> it sounds like a good uh, back cover quote for the second edition. It's good, but. <laughs> It's not really for my age. (laughs) (laughs) Sophia Johnston. That would actually be very hilarious. So, Ziggy, why have you not read anything that your dad has written? Um, I just don't read anything pretty much. Were you even aware that he wrote these books? Yeah. Um, Ziggy, to be fair, on An Uncompromising Gospel and Past Room of Sinners, the picture on the back, who's responsible for that? Um, The world-famous photographer, me. (laughs) So... I supported you. What is your support for me? Well, you didn't pay me at all, so like, I mean, it, 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 yeah. I mean, why would I support you if you're not so supporting me? So, do you guys think? Really? Uh, do you not care at all? Are you interested in, or do you think it's lame that your dad writes books? Okay, so once I'm a teenager, maybe I'll start reading them. That's pr- I'd take that weight. I think that's that? that's pretty good. I think I'd be more interested. But at your that age. sister's a teenager, and Maggie is very embarrassed by my books, right? I mean, why would she be embarrassed? It's a good job to be a writer. But she goes to high school, and some people have read them, and she thinks it's really lame when people like things I've written, or even that we podcast. I think it's fair to say that. It's just. It's just her. You think that's just her? You're going to be different. Well, no. Because I'm a mini her. A mini her. So I'm not gonna read different. So Ziggy. But I'll uh, at least try to read one book. How, as far as like sales, how much do you think you have done to help sell my books, like with your friends and peers? Um, nothing. You've not promoted it, or seems a little short-sighted. On the your only part. people that I know that I could promote to are your friends, who you've probably already promoted to, and your friends are pretty much my teachers. And we got free books anyway, so. And did not read reviews. <laughs> All right. Well, do you guys have anything else on your dad and books before we uh, bid you adieu? Um, basically, he gets uh, some money from it, so I support him. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I'd, I'd be really nice because someday maybe you'll write a book, and you don't want your dad to go, I'm not yeah. reading that. Like, I mean, it's good, but it's not really for my age. Looking Having Orange Glasses by Ziggy Johnston. <laughs> Maybe you could write some, like, Sophia, maybe someday you'd write something, like, along the lines of kind of like Harry Potter. And then you're like, Dad, could you read this? I'm really excited and proud about this. And he says, well, I read one page. It was good, but it's not really for my age. (laughs) He wouldn't do that. Why not? He's my father. So I think you should read his book someday, okay? So any other thoughts on your dad and books? Um... I think Maggie would read would read them if she actually knew what they were about. Like, if she read one of them, she would read more of them. Well, that's very nice of you. Maybe you can have a talk with her then, huh? No. All right. Well, we appreciate that. And then uh, I, I think we're going to actually uh, turn the third mic down so we don't get feedback from our central air that works but very loudly here. We thank Ziggy and... Sophia, for bringing their wit and wisdom to the episode. And, Mike, why don't we talk about the book, huh? Sure. So um, this is uh, The Devil Behind the Surplus. Uh, Wade, you've had a couple books um, that you've self-published under Magdeburg. 
and then uh, 1517 Legacy. But this one's under uh, Pickwick, which is an imprint of Whip and Stop. So this is or stock, excuse me. And so you you've gotten to the big time. This is this is impressive. Yeah, and I love that. so tell us about um, this was. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this was basically your dissertation. You turned this into a book, right? Yeah, it uh, basically a lot of my grad work focused on um, Matthias Flacius or Flacius Illyricus, and so my thesis then was built in my dissertation, and and some work really I've done I done in the parish just played into that as well, but um, this is my revised dissertation. Big chunks were taken out as far as a. Uh, I took out of the introduction the big overview of German and English language literature on the topic and stuff like that. Um, but it's largely, um, I guess, a summary of what I had done in my dissertation and a presentation of a, what kind of the fruits of my research during that time. Uh, should I just give an overview of the book? Well, or? let's do this. Let me ask you this question. So Luther has passed away. Um, things are um, things are a little bit shaky. Um, there are some uh, some agreements with the Roman Catholic Church that um, have not uh, that maybe aren't super kosher, if we can use that word. So why don't you why don't we start with this? Why don't you give us a historical uh, sketch of between Luther and then. Uh, the controversies that uh, Flacius is a part of. Sure, and this is, uh, when I started my research on this, even before I entered into grad school, because I didn't think grad school would be possible, and I was working in the parish, and I looked at some possibilities, and uh, there were, you know, it, it was either a, a situation where it was, you know, go to a, a high-level school that I could get into and leave the parish and be full-time grad student, or go somewhere that was pretty high level and I could go to, but um, the field they offered for history did not align with my interests. Um, or kind of this program that Central Michigan had, this joint program where you could do a joint PhD with a European partner, in this case, either Jena or Erasmus in Rotterdam, which ended up being a, really bless a real blessing. Um, and, and so I ended up going to Central, and, and they were very open to me doing research on Flacius. And maybe if I can just give background. In the Formula of Concord, Article 10, there's kind of a, a footnote in the Kolbungard edition that references Flacius on, um, about Adiaphora, von der Mindelingen. And uh, I had been in St. Louis once with, shout out to a Missouri Senate friend, Dave Jewell, and another friend of his, uh, Charles Lehman. And we were in the library there at Concordia St. Louis, and one of them kind of tossed out this footnote in the Book of Concord, and, or the Kolbungard edition. And I thought, you know what, that's pretty cool. And I said, I'd like to read that. And so I actually got a uh, microfiche copy of it while I was there and read it. And it was um, very pertinent to some things I was wrestling with. And so it led me to Flacius. Matthias Flacius Illyricus, or Flacius, was... Um, from Croatia, uh, and we've talked about this in some other episodes, he becomes a he becomes sympathetic to Protestantism. His uh, uncle, Baldo Lupentina, or Lupentino, depending on who you're reading, um, was a monk who was actually put to death by the Venetian Inquisition for being a Lutheran. Uh, lots of people were called Lutherans just for 
being dissenting voices. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, it doesn't always mean you know this person agreed with Luther on everything, um, but. He, Flacius had actually been sent back home with letters for, from the Schmalkaldic League, which was a defensive league of Lutheran princes um, for Baldo Lupentino's uh, freedom. That obviously didn't work, but his uncle told him, don't recant, sing, which is just great Lutheran advice because we sing wonderful Lutheran hymns. And uh, <clears throat> Flacius makes his way north. He kind of makes his way through what's now traditionally Reformed territories, but will end up in, in Wittenberg. And goes through a a, um, a various a very serious bout of depression, which I think m- many of the great reformers went through. And we need to remember this is a day and age where people didn't know what depression is, um, and oftentimes that the melancholia. Yeah, and it gets in in chronic has endure both. Albrechtur and Lucas Chronic both have great paintings on melancholia. And they have this sense of this is an external thing I can't completely control, but there's also like this internal sense of guilt of like, if I'm a Christian, why am I not happy? Um, and Luther, who's later in his life, then uh, Flacius does not have a lot of classes with Luther. But he is at he is at Wittenberg at the same time exactly. Luther is and does know him. Yeah. And Luther does help Flacius through this. He's really a student of Melanchthon, which will be interesting for the controversies that follow. Um, but after Luther's death. The emperor manages to invade Germany, uh, Charles V, Roman Catholic, and wants to re-Catholicize Germany. And he realizes he can't just do it outright because even though he's won these military victories, there would be um, guerrilla warfare, whatever you might call it today, there would be popular resistance to that. And so he introduces what are called interims. So you have the um, Augsburg interim, which fails. Because it's just outright, you're going to do these Catholic things now. And by Catholic things, I mean uh, jurisdiction of bishops, um, the canon of the Mass, you know, things that are central to uh, Roman Catholicism and the Mass as a re-sacrificing of Christ. And were non-negotiable for Lutherans. Right. And so um, what ends up happening is the Augsburg Interim, which is at first introduced, fails um, but this later proposal uh, will be introduced, which is to be a compromise between both. And Flacius is going to oppose that, and there's going to be some Wittenberg theologians who will support it, unfortunately. And maybe we need to, to rewind now at this point, Mike, but um, I'm going to throw it to you, if that's all right. And I think his background, because you teach worship at the college, if you could speak a little bit about vestments, what they are, and uh, if they convey anything, should they convey anything? And just maybe about what the surplus itself is. You wear a surplus. My pastor wears a surplus. I don't throw a protest over it. But maybe if you could just give an introduction for the reader of why why does anybody care about vestments? Right. So, or uh, what their pastors so, maybe vestment could be a suit. Yeah. So something's a lot of this controversy is going to be about <clears throat> vestments. It's not really about vestments, but it's going to play a part in it. And we may think, well, geez, what's the big deal? Who cares what the the pastor wears? Well, to make one point that we've made before, you got to wear something and you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose. That is a great John Hooper story, by the way, (laughs) if I come back to it later. Uh, You get to you can't choose what other people think about your clothes. 
right? You may think it's unfair, and maybe it is. In a lot of cases, it is. But uh, you don't get to choose that. And so uh, the vestments are going to play a role in what we're going to call the doctrine of of Adiaphora, and Wade will explain that uh, in a little bit. Um, The other thing to, to think about is how closely tied doctrine and practice and liturgy specifically are. And it may seem odd that one group, such in this case, uh, the Roman Catholic political secular rulers, want to force a certain vestment. But there's meaning behind that. And uh, they understand that outward forms can be a tie that binds. It may be something that is superficial, um, but it may not be either. I mean, we think about uh, when it comes to, uh, let's say, well, we had a we had a very uh, moving funeral here in Milwaukee of a police officer that was shot in the line of duty. Nobody would go up there and say, geez, you guys look ridiculous in your dress blues, right? It, it does matter. It does matter. And a- Anglicans really, really get this um, maybe too much uh, that they are often tie, feel that they're tied by the liturgy or that's something that, that brings them together uh, in a good way, but you have to have more. You have to have doctrine there. So uh, in order to understand Flacius and uh, the, 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 the interim and everything that's going to follow, you kind of have to have some inside baseball on vestments. So, um, and maybe, Mike, if I could just, if you could sure. unpack a little bit because you teach us in worship, we, we can be detached from a vestment and think, well, why does someone care about that? And I know when I first got to my parish I served before being at WLC, um, I had a shut-in who had not been there much the last 10 years, and only remembered the pastor wearing a uh, black Geneva. Mm-hmm. And then she saw an ordination picture of me in which I was wearing an all, which is what my predecessor had worn in pictures in the back. Um, for lay people who uh, see vestments or a suit or a polo shirt week after week, maybe if you can just, for our listeners, unpack a little bit what... Um, the weight that these things can maybe take on, and even a godly weight, I mean, a well-meaning weight mm-hmm. for people. Sure. Um, and you have to you have to obviously be concerned about those consciences because all of a sudden the pastor comes up and wears something completely different. It's not unreasonable to think, okay, is this guy completely different on everything else, right? And so you're very wise to teach and move forward. Um, and so... Uh, when it came to vestments, it, there's no magic story. There's no great, like, this came down from heaven, you know. There's no, like, sometimes we get have, like, well, the guy's wearing white because that's the righteousness of Christ. Well, actually, it really is probably because of the robes of Rome, <laughs> you know, the tunics. Like the, it's more close to, like, the toga, you know. But But the point was that you're doing something different, you're doing something that's set apart, that's holy, and so you would cover yourself up, and that's a fine practice. You don't have to, but that's a fine practice. And so you had uh, black, which was uh, more often uh, like a teaching gown, and so you could very see like uh, a Luther or somebody else, a picture of him preaching in a black gown. Well, that probably was you know a regular day service in that was tied to either the university, maybe the parish church. I, I'm not exactly sure about that. But when it came to the the Sunday service, th- there would have been these vestments, and so you would have a black 
gown, which we would call a cassock, so a skinny black gown, uh, that was just for warmth. And then you would have what's called a surplus, which would be a white gown that would be placed over that. So if you can picture an Anglican Anglican priest, that's... Or even some in Roman Catholicism, yep. perhaps an altar boy, because some still wear this. Yeah. Yep, yep. And then in many, many Lutheran churches, you'll also have this too. The alb, which is just a word for white, there's nothing magical about that. That's just all white. So I like to think about the, the alb is like the... It's kind of like the uh, clip-on tie of the clerical world. <laughs> you know, that's it's, why wear black than white when I can just wear white, you know? Um, so uh, a lot of people are, are used to that. Now, when it comes to the uh, those who would be maybe uh, of a Reformation or part of the specific Lutheran Reformation that were a little bit more non-liturgical, they would just go with the, the black gown. But and really, this is where, go back and listen to the Black Geneva Piety yeah. episode with Dr. Mark Brown. Yeah, yeah and, and it's named Geneva, you know? I mean, that should be like a cue to us Lutherans, like maybe, you know, this was, this is not historically Lutheran. And so, but uh, there was a part of history, and I'm getting off a field here, where, where someone who was more liturgical and not that had that black Geneva piety was considered suspect, which may have been true, but it's very unfair. And so on one hand, you say vestments don't matter why you're dressing up. And then all of a sudden you say vestments obviously do matter. Right? And the so, funny thing is that many people who will say vestments don't matter will get really worked up when vestments they don't like are in play, yeah. Right, and so, uh, you know, we've talked about this ad nauseum, and so you can go back and listen to some of the worship wingnuts that we had, and, and we did talk about vestments and collars and stuff like that, the importance of it, that you can't get away from it, and no, it's not a sin to wear this, that, or the other thing, but I think you can be thoughtful about it. So, uh, then I'll kick it back to you, Luther, or Luther, <laughs> Wade. Uh, I'm going to kick it back to you, Wade, uh, about... About this whole idea with the with the cassock, the surplus, and the vestments. Why does that play a big part? Yeah, and you had Lutheran territories at this time that had retained the cassock and surplus, but you had many who had gone away from it. And so as part of this interim, this re-Catholicizing agenda, when you mandated the cassock and surplus or the surplus be worn, you were mandating that some territories reintroduced it. And the concern was that if you're reintroducing the surplus— and when people had seen the surplus leave with the Reformation, that the message sent was, well, all that old stuff um, isn't as suspect as we thought it was. The second big issue was that this was compelled by the state. Um, should the state be able to mandate what the church does? And here, um, Flatius and the Lutherans do a very, um, historically, the Reformed event connected with the state, um, or with... Uh, not rebellion, but uh, more so than you know, more so than the Lutherans were willing to take up arms. Where even later, there's cases where Lutherans would be almost right passive yep. unless they had been attacked. And this plays into and, and and really my interest in this was sparked because you have the Shire myth, which William Shire writes, um, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, which is just a, an interesting book, but a horrible book in many ways. But if you if you really want to understand William Shire, you have to read his um, his diaries when he lived in Berlin be before the war, and he writes you know paragraphs on fat German women ankles and how many knickknacks they have. We really should do a whole episode on the Shire myth. I would love to do yeah, that. Yeah, and he and he has a thing even in the in Rise and Fall of Third Reich where he says you know, and I understand this because I'm a Protestant, and in footnotes like he's a Methodist, whatever. <laughs> but um, 
There is this myth that Lutherans are just passive, quietist, and quietist is probably the better word. Um, the early theories of resistance to the government really did come out of Magdeburg, and that's um, part of this book and also why I had Magdeburg Press, um, of when you can resist the state. And I would say from probably the Enlightenment on, most people thought any theory of resistance comes from the Reformed. And Lutherans just are, you know, I've joked about this kind of like evolution chart where it just goes Martin Luther to Hitler and the arm just keeps kind of raising and the, the marching gets, you know, more goose-steppish. But um, there was, and, and the interesting thing is, what's the Sede's passage for obedience to the state in Lutheranism? Romans 13. They use Romans 13 to argue for why you might resist the state. Now, I'll admit, I'm not the most resist the state guy. I'm not comfortable with the American Revolution as a thing on the whole. Um, oh, easy, buddy. Easy. Yeah. Easy. But, uh, well, that's a that's a big <laughs> issue among some, but... I, yeah. What do you think? Um, I, I probably... Um, I think you can make a case, but it's very difficult, and I would be uneasy with you. I just don't want to put it out there on the internet. So you would disagree with me that... I'm not going to put it out on the internet. All right, well, that's another episode, but... <laughs> But uh, part of what the book is doing, and the book is not groundbreaking for this, and it's not the main part of the book, but, but it's just but I to think, show. I think, sorry, I want to. I want oh, to. I want to toot your horn for you. Um, that's that's I think why this book actually is quite important. Um, the connection, ever so slightly, that you made um, about the two kingdoms, I think, is valuable. And that, and I think that. Um, plays more into this than a lot of people get because a lot of people will look at this controversy and say this is just an inter-church controversy about what you should wear and most of Flacius' objections are the state is not going to tell me what to wear now if the state was going to tell Flacius how much he could sell corn for or um, you know when he could go across the crosswalk he would absolutely be okay with that um, but this does play into uh, what is the role of the church and who should be and I think uh, this plays into even what should the church be able to say the church can do. You know, Flacius is going to say it's the free consent of the congregation. Um, and so if you can't go to a congregation or a um, Alondis Kirka, a territorial church, and say this is sin, then you are sinning by trying to compel them to do something you can't make a biblical case for. And then the next step is the great line that, that comes in, in the formula of Concord that, um, you know, um, in controversy, there is no, it's yeah, not an exactly. and, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but um, if someone tells you that you have to wear a surplus, then you're almost compelled to not wear right. a surplus. Yeah. I mean, the only thing in all my research that I could find that Flacius absolutely hated about liturgical worship, like where he really had an axe to grind, is he hated organs. He complains about the groaning of organs. He did not like the organ. And he especially did not like when the organist just played a bunch. Like, I mean, we've all been in church when it's like we sing a verse and then it's like five minutes of like, you know. And, and I'll admit, I I personally have a sympathy with Flacius on that. But I also think there is something, too. I've, I've heard that done well. But um, I guess if we can just summarize the German side, maybe in short would be, What's uncharact what what has not been historically presented well about Flacius in this is that A we have in Flacius and then his later his well, Flacius is teaching in Magdeburg, 
He's praised by Melanchthon as a polyglot, someone who can speak multiple languages. Uh, he's a Hebrew professor. He's teaching in Hebrew. He's never good at German. He says there's way more people that should be writing these things, opposing these movements. Um, he voluntarily leaves. He realizes, like, I can't do this. I can't make these compromises. Opposes Melanchthon in whose house he had lived, whose you know, um, kind of up-and-coming student he had been. And that will never be healed, that bitterness. And I think he is treated unfairly in that. My apologies to Scott Keith, um, who is a Melanchthon scholar and probably disagrees with me. Um, but I don't think Flacius was ever intended to be a polemicist. I think he inherited that. But, um, he, but, he, but he saw maybe, maybe Melanchthon saw something that would be expedient, which I think we all would be like, just wear the stupid, right. wear the stupid and gown. This is exactly but it. He, but Flacius is saying, I've seen, I, I know where this leads. My uncle got drowned to death in Venice in the, what do you call those, canals, whatever. Um, you know, these things mean something. And uh, Melanchthon's uncle had been Reuchlin, who was a Hebrew scholar, who helped land him the Wittenberg gig. Now, to Melanchthon's credit, Reuchlin wanted Melanchthon to get out of Wittenberg and go somewhere else. And Melanchthon said, no, I'm on this crazy train. So that's not to bash Melanchthon. Um, who, who, but, al- who also gets the unfair treatment right yeah. yeah no Melanchthon I mean gave much for the Reformation but uh, but Flacius knew persecution I mean he knew what it is to stamp out the Reformation and he saw it happening and so if I can maybe just wrap up the German side before we get to the English because I think our listeners are less familiar with that um, because this is compelled by the state because it's associated with a different confession and this applies to worship too for Flacius and then for the Formula of Concord, Article 10, it's very important. If you're introducing a practice that is associated with another confession, that becomes problematic because are you bringing that confession into the church? And so if you're going to sing Arminian hymns, this is problematic. If you're going to wear vestments that give the impression that we're not so different than the Roman Catholics who we've broken away from, this becomes problematic. And then I would say third um, becomes the freedom of the Christian and the freedom of the Christian congregation that adiaphora ought to serve the edification of the people, that the congregation should be able to say, this serves us or doesn't serve us well, and the broader church should be willing to respect that. Now, if the broader church says, we think you're wrong on this, and they can make a, make a biblical case, then by all means, Flacius would be the first to humbly consent to that. And this is why he gets into trouble debating Strigo later, by the way. But the idea that, um, you know what, we're going to give our brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt— that uh, that they kind of know what they're dealing with. But Mike, you look like yeah. you want to jump in there. No, just a couple things uh, before you you go to to Hooper. Um, you know, one, I'm glad that you explained polyglot because it does sound like an insult, but it's not. Oh, it's a compliment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's such a polyglot, and you're like, oh yeah, he really is a bad guy. Um, the other thing too is, you know, it, you can sing certain hymns that are not by Lutherans. You can wear vestments that have historically um, been something of like, let's say, reform, like a black Geneva. There's nothing wrong with that. Just be thoughtful about it, be loving about it, um, teach it and stuff like that. And, and, but the point for Flacius is you don't, it can't be a demanded thing without that thoughtfulness, without or that. Or it can't be given the impression right. that there are insignificant differences between us and a different confession. And so I find, and I'm going to, give it right back to you, Mike, but I find that our people are very 
um, alert to, well, that's Roman Catholic. But on the, you know, and so we don't want to do something papist. But I think we miss the point of Article 10 and Flacius of we also don't want to give the impression that we're just Baptists who ba- we're just Baptists who baptize babies right. and believe Christ's body and blood is in the sacrament, that there's no meaningful difference there. Which you actually hear from actual people who work for the church body that will say, well, the really only difference is, is these two meaningless, meaningless is they don't use that word. And then but you sacraments. reinforce that when mission counselors say, you know, go do what the Pentecostal right, church right. down the road totally is Totally misunderstanding that uh, attack on, on Holy Communion is an attack on Christology but a different episode, of course. Um, but and the I could, same in that Flacius realizes these. this gets at that. Yeah, and I, and just maybe one more thought before I ask you about the actual title, um, and then we can tell a story Ceremony about the picture. Ceremony is doctrine for the eyes. That's Flacius. <laughs> that um, when it comes to um, specifically, well, let me put it this way. I like what you said about we're we we're really sensitive to kind of Romish things, but less so sensitive when it comes to evangelical things. That's part of, of being American. Uh, it's a Protestant country, if it, if it's anything, when it comes to 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 religious. Uh, you know, it. I mean, if you if you drive through Milwaukee and you read the billboards that have the picture of the Archbishop in quotes, it could have been it could have been your local. Uh, um, mega church pastor saying those things. I mean, it just they're, they're nothing Roman Catholic, but the collar on the guys uh, on the billboard. Uh, very, very evangelical thought pattern. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about the Lutheran Middle Road, and you don't want to go too far to the left or too far to the right, I think sometimes we're too far to the. I'm going to use the left here. Too far to the left, the Protestant side, and if you think you're in the middle you look to your right and you think it's the ditch, but it actually might be the middle Yeah, and something to think about too. But to your title, the devil behind the surplus, um, just explain that, just unpack that a little bit. You kind of already have, but let's, let's and, hit it and home and that'll Dr. set Leninger us up is going to be upset with us for saying surplus again and again. Cause he always tells me it's, Surplus, surplus, and well, I say surplus like it's he, economics, but he's pro- I'm sure he's right. I'm yeah. 99.999% sure he's right. Well, so here's what, and we're talking the years about 1548 to 1552. Luther dies 1546, and I didn't want to get lost in dates, and so so far we've managed to do that, and I think that's helpful. But you have the English Reformation begins, and this is an episode itself, the English Reformation, so I'm not going to get all into Henry, whatever, but Henry, the Tudor Reformation, you have Henry, the Henrician, Edward, Edwardian, you have Mary, Marian, and then Elizabeth, Elizabethan, you really have four reformations in one. And maybe briefly just outline how it proceeds. Henry wants to be, in many ways, um, Catholic without the Pope. And he opens up to Protestants somewhat, but at the end of his life, he really has a reaction back against um, Protestantism. And uh, one of the best um, the best journal articles there are is... Uh, is what is it? Alec Reary, the strange death of Luther in England. It's just a model I use in, in several classes. Um, but he has Protestant tutors for his son, and so Edward comes to the throne, and Edward is a uh, dyed-in-the-wool um, Protestant of the Zurich or Zwinglian sort. And I think Thomas Cranmer eventually shows his colors as well. Um, the Zwinglian or Zurich influence when it comes to the Lord's Supper. 
uh, Cranmer will move away from Lutheran doctrine. But you have uh, Thomas Cromwell, who I think was sympathetic to Lutheranism, based on what I've studied. Robert Barnes, who is really a Lutheran martyr, uh, whose um, commemoration just passed. And uh, you have a real sympathy for the Lutheran Reformation. And if I could uh, channel, uh, I'm either getting Rex or Reary. It's Reary. It's not Rex. We always record late night, and then after meetings, my brain is dead. But he argues, right, the Lutheran Reformation really fit princes or kings best because what did Luther do? He appealed to the princes. The reform model fit city councils or um, what we might consider uh, proto-democratic Republican models best. And so England takes a weird turn where Henry doesn't go towards Lutheranism. He's going to go towards the reformed and that Henry was uh, kind of... Um, ill at ease with uh, images, but then want to remain Roman Catholic otherwise. And you can really see how this plays back into the later iconoclasm and the debates in Anglicanism, Anglicanism that will play out. But you can also see it in Edward, which, you know, Zurich lends itself to an uncomfortability with images. Uh, but then the Tudors will influence him to want to have this sort of Zwinglian church. And if I can just describe a Zwinglian church, when I'm studying the when I was studying in the Netherlands and living there, um, there was officially no Lutheran church there anymore. It had merged with the Reformed. And you would go to these churches, and beautiful churches, but you would look at the walls, and they're white. And as a Lutheran, you would just wonder, what did they paint over? And I think maybe that's the best way I can put it, is there was a whitewashing of the church's past. <clears throat> Flacius never thought there was a time where the church was not. He is one of the people who did the first church histories, and he would find a confession of Christ from the last person you would expect in the Middle Ages. I did not know that he was a historian like that. Oh, he's the father of patristics. He's the father of hermeneutics. He's a father of, uh, I mean, just numerous things. And But he gets castigated just for, I mean, he had one error on originals. Yes, it was not great. But, um, but, uh, but you get this weird mix with Edward, where Edward wants to imitate the Zwinglian Reformation. And, and that's in episode two, Zwingli himself in Zurich. Um, but Zwingli's Reformation begins partly out of concern with, um, with Swiss mercenary service. You have the Swiss are serving as soldiers throughout the empire. Um, and he thinks that he's a nationalist. This is not good, that we're dying. Our boys are dying for other countries. Um, you have a sort of biblicism of, I mean, the, the big event is the affair of the sausages which is, is is just a weird name but can you eat sausages in lent and there's this big controversy over the eating of sausages and it becomes very much about what practices are christian what can you do and so zwingli is going to say in christian freedom you can eat sausages but to be fair zwingli also wants to make a lot of laws that impede christian freedom luther sees church and state as distinct yet um two spheres in which the Christian lives. Zwingli wants the state to excommunicate, not the church. So he definitely wants more of a theocratic type move. Um, And so what you have in in Zurich is a purified church. Whitewashed walls. We don't wear vestments because Jesus didn't wear vestments. At one point, I'll go back to my joke. Um, At one point, Hooper says, Jesus died naked on the cross, so this shows that pastors shouldn't wear vestments. Uh, My advisor encouraged me to take out of my, my Dr. Mooder encouraged me to take out of my dissertation a throwaway line I had about, well, maybe we should preach naked because um, it was a history PhD, not a theology PhD. Um, but uh, <laughs> and, and just a 
just a dissertation. <laughs> right. But it, I mean, it just, um, but if I could get to, and I, I want to hand it over in a second, Mike, to the kernel of it. Um, if anybody has my book and then don't buy it just to buy it, it is, I think, lay accessible. I don't know. You've looked at it somewhat, Mike. I think it, I, I tried to make it consciously so, um, but, uh, if you just read the conclusion, you're going to get the, the basic gist. Flacius saw the church at his time as a remnant. The Lutheran Reformation had happened. Luther died. It was challenged. He sees Elijah. He sees those who won't bow the knee. And he says, we have to confess. Hooper sees a church ascendant. He sees um, Edward as a new Josiah who's going to smash the idols. And he wants the state to really exercise all its force to make religion pure. Um, and so the biggest difference becomes, so Hooper's going to be made a bishop. They think Hooper's great. He was in exile under Henry. He left because Henry had this kind of like shift against the Reformed. And they say, you got to shave your beard and wear the surplice and we're going to anoint you bishop. And he says, well, maybe I'll shave the beard, but I ain't going to wear the surplice. So he ends up in the tower, which is sounds like a great place. Like, I want an apartment in the tower. But it's actually where like they torture you or <laughs> you're like... You know, so he's punished, and he eventually comes around somewhat. But you have Nicholas Ridley and Thomas Cranmer, who were bishops who had said, you know what, we're going to have this practice of gradualism. We are going to gradually introduce Reformed practices, Zurich-like practices. And, um, and Hooper says, no, there's not, this is not step-by-step. Step. These things are wrong because Christ didn't, Christ didn't wear a surplus. We shouldn't wear a surplus. Hooper will eventually accommodate and then serve very faithfully as a bishop. But, um, but the issue becomes, for, do, for Flacius, do we have Christian freedom in those things that, that the New Testament has not prescribed? Or for Hooper, can we do things the New Testament hasn't introduced for us to do? And so for Hooper, the New Testament hasn't said wear vestments, so we shouldn't wear vestments. For Flacius, he doesn't care if we wear vestments or not, so long as we're not undermining the doctrine of justification and Christian freedom. And so um, the book for me in many ways was to show that at the end of the day, Lutheranism is unique in that um, we're like the one church that will argue we totally have the right not to wear a vestment we totally would wear so long as you didn't tell us to do it because at the end of the day, we want nothing to get in the way of Christ crucified for sinners. Whereas you have others who will fall back on prescriptions for what you can do. And now people might say today, non-denominationalism, these things have nothing to do with Hooper and the English church, but they absolutely do because how many Lutheran pastors have not been told by others, we're not, we're not a liturgical church, we just do the Bible. Which is really to say, we don't see the liturgy in the Bible, so we don't do it. But if you know the liturgy, it is the Bible, you know, in various parts. So if I could just, the way I summarize in the book is Hooper wanted a new Josiah, topple idols, we're going to have a purified church. Flacius just wanted a, a church that was about justification by grace through faith that ordered itself based on that. And I'm going to hand it to you, Mike, but I think this plays to your worship class. And this is where we, we're not always eye to eye on worship, but I think it lends itself to the Lutheran churches said, we are going to 
worship in accord with our theology, and at the end of the day, if something does not serve the proclamation of the gospel, then that's that. Not, we're going to worship in a way that Christ didn't have an organ, so we're not going to have an organ. You know, um, the orientation is very different. Yeah, I, quite a few thoughts here. One, one is a, a little bit of pietism that says, uh, you know, if I, if I don't, there, there's a, there's a pure church out there and we can be the pure church. And what that usually means is, uh, taking away anything that, uh, seems to be institutional. And really I would say, um, it seems to be anything that's physical. And so again, you have the whitewashed walls and we have this kind of purity. It's just spiritual. And so there, there's that added element that, that goes there. Either way, you're still in the realm of the law. Um, you're still trying to make a law by saying you can't do this because it's not pure. Um, you're, you're still prescribing something. And I think th- the benefit of freedom is that then you can have a conversation about truth. But then when it comes to things like li- liturgical matters and stuff like that, that certainly are uh, under the realm of, uh, of Adiaphra, that you can have an actual honest discussion about these things. What do they mean? What serves the and gospel? And maybe just to jump in there, Adiaphra is simply meaning an indifferent matter. It's not commanded or forbidden by God, and it doesn't bring baggage. But Yeah, and I think that often we we play the Adiaphra card like it's a trump card. And so if, if it's something that we want to do, but someone says you can't do, like let's say have a beer, you play the Adiaphra card. Then when it comes to something you don't, want to do and someone says I think this is a good de- idea then you play the Adi offer card and I think we're a little bit selfish that way we we Inflation abuse says that. you can't use that card unless you're going to talk about does it serve for edification yeah. and and I think Flacius is saying let's get to the 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 point of freedom and the next step then is well in, in a situation where there is no state mandating a surplus or state mandating you have to sing the Kyrie, which I don't think ever, ever happened, but, um, or, or the, the ecclesiastical structure says you have to do this or you can't do this because, um, it, it, uh, it, it, it wasn't prescribed in the new Testament. Once you get away from all of that, then you're in the, in the, in the realm of freedom where you can actually have discussion about, is this edifying or not? And, th- and th- I think that's where, we can be, and I think in a lot of cases, I know in my congregation, we got to that point. You know, we got to that point. And so um, we'll, let's lead into the to the uh, your bulletin board. <laughs> um, the, the title of this book is The Devil Behind the Surplus. And so the idea is the devil is behind the surplus, as in the law and saying the, you have to do this or you're not And there was a famous safe. woodcut. Um, who said this? What, what, what was Well, in, in Magdeburg really is the... And this is part of the, if I'm ever employable in history beyond uh, WLC, it'd be because this is very important for the history of propaganda. Magdeburg outprints anyone in Europe, and Flacius outprints anyone before Luther, and even outprints many spurts of Luther's life, um, opposing the interims. And they have a woodcut with a surplus from the front, and in the back you see the devil's tail, whatever else. And these are... Um, at a time when Magdeburg was the only city meaningfully holding out anymore against the Catholic emperor, they are under and, siege. And they're specifically against the Leipzig interim or the... Or both which, interims, right. Okay, okay. And they are under siege, I mean, for months, 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 years. And uh, 
you know, there's stories, who knows if they're apocryphal or not, but you, you find them in documents from the time of, they would send, you know, soldiers dressed up as women out, and the, the Spanish soldiers, and the Spanish were really vilified because the Habsburg had a big, you know, Spanish connection, and they would send, you know, soldiers dressed up as women out, and the Spanish would come up to rape them, and they, the Magdeburgers would cut them down and run back in. But they would literally throw pamphlets over. What they had in that city was printing presses. And, I mean, the, there's stories of they're, they're celebrating God's service, and a cannonball comes through the roof and doesn't blow up, and the, pre, the pastor, you know, kind of laughs and then continues with the service. Um, but it is... I mean, for the history of propaganda, it is huge that they realize we don't have the troops, we don't have the resources, but we will print God's truth like crazy. Um, and uh, so this woodcut becomes very popular, and for many people who are illiterate, is very powerful of, here's the vestment, here's the vestment they're re- reintroducing, and then you turn it, and there's the devil. So literally the title is from that woodcut, of the devil behind the surplus, or Chorik, as it was called in German, C-H-O-R-R-O-C-K. And, um, you know, it it was funny because it it shows the power of images, right? This is, a, in many ways, this is a fight over images or what a pastor's wearing. And uh, they, I mean, they would literally throw these over the walls. And you have Moritz, the, uh, who be, so just give me two minutes, Mike. John Frederick is the elector of Saxony. He goes to the Battle of Milburg. The Schmalkaldic League is set up to win. Moritz, his cousin, who was the um, Duke of Saxony, so Duke George and, uh, you know, Luther famously had said, even if heaven should reign, Duke George, I mean, jackasses, you know, <clears throat> um, George opposed the Reformation. Uh, he wanted the electoral title. And what he actually does is is the Schmalkaldic League was looking at a one-front war, and Moritz turns against him and leads his Protestant forces, his Lutheran forces, and Protestant and Lutheran were synonymous at the beginning against John Frederick. And this is why John Frederick is taken captive. This is another episode. John Frederick is a hero because I don't know if he was ever, like, seriously Lutheran until he's taken captive. But um, this uh, this enables the emperor to take control of Germany. Well, guess who is laying siege to Magdeburg? It's Lutheran forces under Moritz. And so this propaganda war is brilliant because they're saying, you share the same confession of, think about this. We're under siege because the Catholic emperor has come in. We're fighting for Lutheranism, which is what you are. You know, this, this becomes an appeal to the populace, which is in the Lutheran tradition from Luther, becomes very important. Well, what happens eventually is Moritz realizes this is untenable, forces the emperor out of Germany. He turns on him again, which is why it's called the Judas of Meissen. He turns on everybody. Um, and But they come to terms with Magdeburg, and Magdeburg did not surrender. And at, when they come to terms, when they have the signing, they say, oh, Magdeburg surrendered. And Magdeburg says, no, we've not surrendered. But in the Thirty Years' War, if you ever go to Worms, they'll have the, um, the sorrowful Magdeburg, and Magda's virgin or maid. Um, in the Thirty Years' War, they destroy Magdeburg because it's a symbol of this Protestant resistance. Um, but just to give a sense for the, the power of that image, the devil behind the surplus, for fellow Lutherans who are laying siege to your city of, look, you know, I mean, I mean it's, to me... In an age, I mean, there's just not propaganda on the scale before that. This is like the internet, you know, with what you can do now. It's a very powerful image. 
Yeah, and I think that's that's so important for a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, the the pen is mightier than the sword. One thing, but but also for us in our in our to appreciate the freedom that we do have. Um, and we look back and go, geez, what's the big deal? Well, people are dying here. I mean, th- this is a big deal. A lot deal. of people in this bad a, ways. This is a very big deal, you know, and um, there are symbols that we will fight for too, you know, and, and this, is, <clears throat> this is one of those. And what, what we don't really always appreciate in America is because of our, our, for lack of a better term, separation between church and state is we don't always have a religious, even though we try to sometimes, a religious component to our, to our, our politics and our wars and stuff like that. And we don't really always understand the religious wars of that period or the religious wars that are going on in the world right now. And they're not fighting for some uh, parochial, outdated, you know... Um, cultural thing they're fighting for the doctrine of justification and i won't unpack this because i want to get if only that's the thing we were fighting most of our church battles about today right it almost seems like we we got to battle something and so we'll we'll find something else but uh, although many things are i think we would love to be john hooper and the state says just shave your beard and wear a surplus and i think if we thought that meant we get everything else we want we would just dance. The law always seems easier just to make a law, right. doesn't it? Doesn't it? Where we just have a policy and then we don't have to think things through. But um, I, I do love the, the title, The Devil Behind the Surplus, because in English, you know, and, and maybe in, I don't know if this uh, phrase is, is true of other languages, but uh, the devil's in the details, right? You know, this is, this is kind of a, a small detail, but ah, there's more to this than that. And plus also the idea of it's not just a surplus, it's the devil attacking the, the doctrine of justification. And so uh, what's great about our time right now, and, and, and Wade and I, especially in our, in our world right now, where um, we have this, we, we, we are a part of an era where justification is preached in our church body for the most part. And, uh, sometimes for the most part, for the most part. And we, uh, so we can make jokes about this. And so when, when Wade's book came out and he put on his bulletin board, the, the copy, the front cover, the devil behind the surplus, which was just the the white page yeah, copy with page. just the text before and, they had the cover. Yeah, um, I who wear a cassock and surplus, um, and I think rightfully so because I think it uh, um, it, uh, it it does say, hey, this is something. I have no beef with it. My pastor yeah. wears it too. Yeah, and and it just looks better. You know what? It just I looks better. I disagree with that. And As that's, a fat man, and that's it fact. It looks better on some people. That's fact. That's that's not out of the offer. That's it is fact. not made for people with necks. <laughs> so anyway, um, I wear uh, a cassock and a surplus, and so I had a picture taken of me in a cassock. By and a pastor su- <laughs> who wears a great uh, green uh, suit coat as his vestments, <laughs> and had a picture taken. And he's like, "Why am I taking a picture of you?" And I'm like, "I'm just playing a joke." And so next to uh, the devil behind the surplus on. Uh, Wade's bulletin board is a picture of me in a, in, in a surplus and it's, and it's hilarious to us too. I don't think anybody else thinks it's funny, but we think it's funny. So, well, and I think it goes to show, um, and, and I do think the book is accessible to people from a variety of levels. And I do think it, it gets at something that is important for lay people to realize because in an age of anxiety, I think lay people are latching on to all sorts of stuff as like the fight. Um, when really the fight needs to be justification by grace through faith. And I really think it's all lost if that's not the fight. 
and it um but what and and I think you know Mike I I you know we're largely we agree on worship but there's I'm just there's I, some things you're I wrong can't on. Get, I yeah. can't get as worked up as I used to about stuff but but under the day when a Lutheran theologian advocates for certain vestments or practices he advocates for it be, or she is a theologian not a pastor but advocates for it because it best edifies and is most consistent with the gospel. Um, and if they have to fall back on, we're going to make laws to, to, you know, browbeat you into this, then they've lost their, their kind of Lutheran credentials. Yeah, and you better, you better have justification down. You better be coming with the goods every single Sunday. Right. You better be visiting everybody in the hospital. You better be doing, you better have your catechesis. <clears throat> Uh, wound tight, you better have that. You better be a good teacher and a good preacher before before you start before you start taking them down this road of teaching them about vestments and stuff like that. First, especially as a hallmark. I mean, you see stuff. Well, just briefly, Mike, and then I'll stop. But when we went to New York, and we're in New York, and we're um, kind of after some conference stuff, we end up in an apartment with a variety of people, and I think probably was half and half people who were used to contemporary worship and those who were used to, uh, and, and that's a stupid term. I mean, all worship is contemporary, but but Mike and Eileen, probably the opposite way, but just talking, and I felt an extreme sensitivity to them expressing some of their frustrations of the objections they hear from people, which were all law objections of, mm-hmm. you know, it. I would, I feel much more sympathy for someone who maybe doesn't, isn't on the same page with me with worship, but gets the doctrine of justification. And then, yes, would I try to lead them along in worship? Sure. But what is most frustrating to me of all, and and this is part of what prompted the book, is when people take good things that could be edifying and point to justification and make them law and a sign of their sanctification. I'm a good pastor because I wear this. Well, I'm sorry, that's... uh, You're no different than the person who says, I don't wear it because I'm pure. Right. And that's into where does a badge of honor do not go to seminary for four years so you can go prove a point somewhere by wearing something. I don't care what you're wearing. It, uh, and that's, I think what the book gets at is if, if you want to do that, you're in a tradition, but it's not the formula of conquered tradition. But I'll, yeah. I'll let you end yeah, it. And just, just be thoughtful about it. Just be very thoughtful and teach your people. And I think you can get to the point where you say it, it does matter. And so let's be thoughtful about this, and and, and but but be patient, uh, and, and loving. And you're always going to have uh, dissidents on no matter wh- what you do, of course. But um, uh, just that you're patient and loving. And maybe just to plug your book for for the laity too. You said that it that they could be acceptable or, or accessible to them. I, I for for those who are lay readers who um, uh, come to this without maybe. Um, all of the historical facts and and uh, say well that that book's just it's it's too high for me D- don't don't be afraid of that because I think for one to if you have an interest in church history or theology or whatever you got to go you got to get in somewhere and, and and you might as well just pick up any book and, and start reading but also you don't need to know everything about church history and theology I don't Wade doesn't we we don't know all of those things but when you can 
even if you say, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read everything I, I can on Melanchthon or Flacius or Chemnitz or Augustine or whatever, that, that is actually more beneficial than, than just constantly reading, um, a, a very, maybe an, an, uh, uh, overview kind of book or here's how to live a Christian life or whatever. When you get in deep, even if you don't know the whole context, when you get in deep, you, you become more thoughtful about it. And, and that's, what's great about, uh, academia. There's, there's not, there's some things that are bad about, you know, being a specific, um, uh, not a generalist. There's some warnings there, but when you get specific on something, whether you're in an academic situation or just a, a lay situation, you think about more things broadly than, you, than, than you're giving yourself credit for. And so pick up this book and read it and say, okay, so I know more about Flacius and John Hooper than I do about, heck, Martin Luther. So what? You have thought about these things. And, and to dig in deep, that's what's so great about biographies, to get in deep a little bit. Is going to be beneficial for you, um, and so don't be afraid of of those kinds of books. Pick them up and and read them. And um, if you don't understand everything about it, so what? Um, listen, uh, email Wade. Yeah, email. Listen, most of us don't know everything about uh, the topics that we're so called experts on. I mean, it, it just. Uh, yeah, I had a great professor uh, at Biola who just said, you know, listen, and he was brilliant, and he just said, you know. I, I'm a fraud. We're all frauds. <laughs> you know, we're, we're up here speaking like we're experts. You know, there's just so much to know. Just, just read something for the joy of learning it. And, and, uh, you'll, you'll find more, but you will find so many nuggets in this part of history that really do apply to the American contemporary scene right now. And you're, and it's, and we could tell you about them, but it won't, that that's not that that's not the way to go about it read it and you'll and it'll dawn on you this is exactly what's going on here and that's true about just every aspect of history why why history is so important i think my uh, neighbor's currently throwing a body in a garbage can it sounds like but um no i do appreciate it mike and i, and I would say that i do think um hopefully with the history especially with what got published i tried to be very intentional about at least giving a sense for the bearings of what's going on um, but you were way too kind about the book, and uh, I, would I just, may I may even read the whole thing one day. Yeah, I would say you know um, whether someone reads it or not. What I really latch on to the most, and what you said is, times are not so different as we think. And I think what I love about this time in history is it really um, belied, betrayed, made clear what someone was about, what they were fighting for. And so I think both I think both of these, the surplus is incidental, but it betrayed, it really showed what each theologian held most dear. And I know end of the day for me, and, and this is, I don't know what, I, I mean, I some days I think, give me a year and I'll be a garbage man, whatever else. But as someone who reads God's word, and who likes church history, I would like to think the biggest thing I can do in my life is to be about what the Bible was about at the end, if that makes sense. And I think the book gets at, and and, and I love Flacius, and I know people can fault me, but under the day, I mean, the guy has an unmarked grave. No one knows where he's buried. 
he dies in exile and outcast, and that's another episode. But um, it's just, to me, a reminder to the Lutheran Church, and I think especially the Lutheran Church challenged by the culture and stuff today, either be about justification by grace through faith and Christian freedom, or uh, understand you're just not in our tradition. And to not be in our tradition in the name of tradition, to me, is a great like a greatly ironic thing and and I hope um that that people can if they read the book they realize from as a lutheran obviously this is written impartially as not impartially but as a historian but as a lutheran like at least let's go down let's die as a church body let's whatever the case is for the right thing i mean i just i pray as i get older more and more like if I am ever going to be out of the ministry or I'm going to be, or the Lutheran church is going to go by the byway in America, let's let it be for the right, if we're going to be hated, let's be hated for the right reason, which is Christ crucified for sinners and Christian freedom exercised in Christian love. I have this feeling that Flacius probably would have liked Luther's quote made famous by Ferdy and, and by this podcast. Um, in his his uh, understanding of gospel freedom, I think he would like the phrase "Let the bird fly." Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk. I'm just a tanker. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. I set him up. Another round, one more round, get me down. Came home last night, all full of lush. My babe began to fuss, and I said, honey, honey, I don't care.